31,000-45,000 The Story of Two Trains of French Resistance A podcast by Mathieu Landor-Engel Louise Magadur, de Shave 31,673 Today is the 27th of January and the women of the train have entered Birkenau. The singing has stopped. Everyone is now waiting inside a building. What they have seen so far is incomprehensible. The silence, the smoke, the faces. This camp is nothing like any other place they know. Louise Magadur waits like everyone else, scared like everyone else. There are a few natural leaders in the group, some because they are older, some because they have shown authority and respect. José is one of those. She takes care of everyone. She stands up for any injustice. Unfortunately here, she has shown that standing up for yourself or the others results to a great deal of violence. José was one of the first women to be hit by the guards. Another leader is Daniel Casanova. Everyone knows her here. She's a great leading figure. As they wait all together, the SS comes in the room and asks if one is a dentist. Daniel raises her hand. She follows the SS, leaving the other women on her own without their leader. The women are told to undress entirely and led in a room. There, they will be shaved entirely. Panicked, they all turn to Louise for advice. She is 43 years old. She is older than most of the women here. The youngest ones tend to her for reassurance. Louise tells everyone it will be fine. She hopes it will. Back in 1942, Louise owned a hairdressing shop in Paris. Herself and her shop had become a resistant front for multiple operations. Whenever a prisoner or resistant needed a new identity, her shop was a key point. They could sleep there if need be. They could hide. And Louise cut their hair to make anyone look like a very different individual. Back in the present, all hair need to be shaved. The camp had let some diseases get in, including typhus. The administration attempted to disinfect any incoming prisoner before they joined in the camp. No risk was being taken. Louise tries to make everyone feel as comfortable as possible, but it isn't easy. Sophie Brabender is the first to go. Then comes her daughter, Helen Brabender. Hélène is terrified. Sophie takes the scissors off the hairdresser and she cuts her daughter's hair herself. It's a brave move. It motivates the rest. Then comes the tattoo process. They tattoo on their arms the number that define the woman during their stay in Birkenau. It is a number which will mean a lot to them. A number between 31,000 and 32,000. 
the woman become the 31,000. They are finally given new clothes, the same they saw on the other prisoners. The new and old prisoners get to talk to each other. The old ask questions about outside the camp, the new about inside the camp, the rules to follow, the mistakes to avoid. The old prisoners learn that the Soviet Union are winning the Stalingrad battle, despite what the German news are spreading. The new prisoners learn where they are, Birkenau, and also that most of them will probably die in the first few months. Not by hunger, but by the whole cause. The whole cause kill here. As they are all done, the 31,000 are brought to a quarantine block, the block 14. Here they all are, entirely different, with new clothes, shaved. Louise Magadur looks at herself. She is a new person. Back in a hairdressing shop, when she was creating new looks and new identities for resistance, she couldn't have made a better job than what this place did to her. Thank you for listening to this episode of 31,000-45,000, the story of two trains of French members of the Résistance. My name is Mathieu Landour-Angel, and I have tried to reach some authors of the book I am using as sources, but I unfortunately haven't managed to get in touch with all. Yet I had the privilege to meet with Caroline Mohad, the author of A Train in Winter, a book about the 31,000. Caroline Moorhead is a famous author who wrote many pieces which I can only recommend, such as A Bold and Dangerous Family, Village of Secrets, A House in the Mountains, Human Cargo, the latter being a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. She is also a biographer and journalist. She wrote for the New York Review of Books, The Guardian, The Times, The Independent, etc. A Train in Winter is a fantastic piece, gripping, from start to finish. It explains in great detail who the 31,000 were, where they came from, their roles as members of the French Resistance, as almost all of them were linked to Resistance networks. You quickly feel close to them, you feel for them, you cry for them, as most of them didn't come back. Here is an edited conversation I had with her in October of 2021. We started by talking about what drew her to write about the 31,000. Somebody sent me um, Charlotte Delbo's book to review mm -hmm. um, because it was published, I think, in America in the New York Review Books. And I was very much struck by her story about how when she came back up to the wall, she uh, wanted to write about them. But, so she wrote them. But then she said, I don't want there to be anything between myself and the reader. So I will put them away, and then I will look at them again. And I was very struck by that, by that approach to writing about things, that you want, you don't want 
your style to get between um, evidence, witness, and the reader. You don't want to hold up the narrative in any way. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by that as a way of writing about such things, which I think then did influence me because it made me think that when you're writing about such things, you don't want to get in the way, which I think is an interesting way of looking at things. And when I had finished what I was writing at the time, I suddenly thought, I I thought again about that, and I suggested to my publishers writing a a book about Charlotte Belbo. And I had a wonderful editor, and she said to me, "Um, well, nobody here has heard about Charlotte Delbo, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Tell me about it. And I can remember she was sitting there, and she was Mm -hmm. doing something else. And I said, well, the thing is, she was on this train. And my editor said, that's it, write about the train. So that's how it happened. And then I started looking at, then I looked at Charlotte Stolbe's book about what happened to the various people. Mm -hmm. And I realized that it was going to be possible to know quite a lot about most of them. And that's what led me, you know, from there was easy to move on. It probably took me about two years to research Mm -hmm. and a year to write. It's roughly what happens, I think, with all the books I do. I think some are going to take me longer and some are going to take me shorter. It's always about the same. It's always about three years from the beginning of the project to delivering the manuscript. Uh, Why do you think uh, so few people know about Charlotte Delbo's work? How is it that we know so little about Charlotte? Well, it's partly, I think, the capriciousness of the publishing world. I think that some things take off and some things don't. Um, I think there was... Nobody in France at that time. When did she publish it? About 60? Uh, I think it was almost 20 years after. Uh, after Absolutely. And maybe that in France was a moment, quite a low moment in interest in it. Mm-hmm. So it didn't get picked up at the time. People were not very interested in it. I don't know if anybody reads Auschwitz and after. I don't know if anybody reads it now. But I do think it's a Pity that Charlotte Delbo is not more read because I think she was both a very good writer, but also I think her take on it, I think the way she wrote about Auschwitz and about the people on the train was very poignant and very, very evocative. Yeah, I can only agree with you. Yeah, there's something incredibly uh, raw about the way she writes. It's, Absolutely, it's both inviting and uh, and also. Uh, um, I don't want to say that it attacks uh, uh, you, you as, a, as a reader, but it's, uh, uh, it has like a, a very ambivalent uh, yes. style. Um, and her perceptions, her details, you know, she picks things out um, which stick in the mind. I think, I mean, I'm sure it's also true of the 45,000. I think what made it, what drew me to the, to the train was rather what you were saying before about writing about these people scattered, different lives, really enables you to tell so much of the story just through them. I was incredibly struck by the fact that if you look at the at the women on my train, um, on the, on the 31,000 train, they were of all ages, all classes, all backgrounds, all beliefs. Um, 
the youngest was what, 16? The oldest was 68. Um, and, you know, there were farmers and hairdressers and teachers and chemists and doctors. It was just such a scattering. And I found that very interesting. I also find very interesting that when they were in uh, Romaville, in their holding place, um, they started to form patterns. And the older ones looked after the younger ones. And um, they made bonds. You see, I, for me, that really partly explained why so many survived, was because by the time they got on the train in January of 43, they were friends. They were, um, they knew each other. They looked after each other. Within the, the, the number of women, there were little groups and they were really fond of each other. So when they got to Auschwitz, um, they got there as a group, whereas many, many, most, all the other trains, um, taking mostly Jews to the concentration camps, the extermination camps, were strangers to each other. Absolutely. I think that, that uh, includes uh, uh, the, the, the very same can be said about the 45,000, 45, because yeah. uh, uh, those were uh, uh, two trains of people who, for the most part, knew each other, uh, some for actually years. Yeah. Um, uh, for the 45,000, uh, uh, they were like in the Compiègne uh, for almost, uh, some of them were there for one year. Yeah, so one they year. really knew each other. And for the 31,000, they knew each other from Romainville as well as uh, La Santé. Yes. Many of them were part of the um, uh, same uh, uh, resistance group, uh, yeah. like the Picancadras uh, yeah. uh, group. Absolutely. Um, but there are also like uh, uh, some of them like uh, uh, Poupette. Um, yes. Uh, who was not part of that group, but they stayed together for a long time in Romainville. So when they arrived they in Auschwitz, they arrived as a, as, as a, a, as a unit, yeah. Absolutely, as a group. And of course, you have to remember with them that they had already experienced the terrible moment when, when those who had husbands and men who were arrested were taken out to be shot um, in Romainville, so that they had this shared grief, if you like, which was another thing, I think, which held them together. Yeah, that's actually very true, yeah. And they'd looked after each other at that point. I mean, I was terribly struck by one of them, Cecile, saying to me that, um, I think it was Cecile, that it was important to understand that the survival of any one of them was as important to the others as our own survival. So when they genuinely thought that they personally could not survive, they did everything to help the ones who were most likely to survive. And that was a sort of selflessness. Um, now, when I said that to some of the men I met from the 45,000, whether or not the friendship between them had been very important, I was interested to note, the thing is, I didn't do this with many of them, so it's not a proper, I was interested to note that they found my question quite curious. And they said, no, it really wasn't like that for us. Uh, for us, we really concentrated on how we were going to survive. And it wasn't friendship. It wasn't friendship that kept us going. Now, I was, true or not, these were just a few I spoke to. But I just bring that up because, because I felt so strongly that what enabled so many of these women to come home was precisely the fact that they were friends.
I, uh, I, I would I would agree with you, and I suspect that maybe they didn't understand it that way. Whereas, like the thirty-one thousand, uh, they knew exactly that uh, each other's survival uh, was uh, actually very important for their own survival. Exactly. And as a unit, they would uh, survive uh, more uh, uh, efficiently. Yeah. Whereas the men maybe um, actually did survive thanks to each other as well. Yeah. I believe that. Yes. But maybe they didn't understand it uh, exactly this in way. the same way. Yeah. Yeah, that's possibly true. Like there's, um, uh, I've, I've read a few things about like the 31,000 just uh, trying to keep each other warm during the work calls. Yes, absolutely. Uh, which only works if you're a, a mini group. If exactly. You can just have, like, and the work. fact they moved when they were on the, t the terrible every morning on the rail call, mm -hmm. when it was very, very cold and snowing, if you remember, they moved so that the outer ones went into the inner ones. Yes. And they changed every 20 minutes. So that the inner ones always kept warm. That's a very clever way to just uh, uh, keep each other standing. Absolutely. Um, whereas, like the forty-five thousand, I actually never read anything about them uh, doing that, uh, doing this. Yeah. Um, but obviously, like they, they actually are, uh, were all. I mean, they, they call each other like triangles uh, yes. constantly in the forty-five thousand. But those are like mini groups as well. Yes. Yes. And. Um, for the 31,000, they didn't call each other this way, but they were actually a very tight yes. uh, groups. Caroline Moorhead wrote A Train in Winter a decade ago. It was published in 2011. At the time, some 31,000 were still alive, and Caroline Moorhead managed to get in touch with some of them. Um, Cecile was the one who lived in Rennes, in Brittany, mm -hmm. and she was wonderful. When I saw her, she was, I suppose she was about 90, late 80s, wow. and she was one of those um, strong, big women, <laughs> funny, interesting, um, and she was terrific. And she laughed at my at my sort of pussy French. She, <laughs> she spoke a very vernacular French. Okay. And she kept on saying, you sound just like a lycée schoolgirl. And... <laughs> It was she who opened the story, which I was always struck by. She said that her mother, when she went into the resistance, um, Cecile had a daughter and she was estranged from her husband. And she said that her, one day her mother said to her, how can you do this? How can you go into the resistance when you have a daughter? And Cecile said, it is because I have a daughter that I'm doing this. I always thought that was a very poignant. There was Cecile Boras or Charroi, Mm -hmm. uh, there was Simone Alizon Poupette, who was the youngest. Um, and what do I remember about her? Um, she was the one, she didn't keep up so much with the others. And she'd had a slightly sad life afterwards when she came back. She was very much alone. I saw her in a flat somewhere in the middle of France. And she was very neat, very tidy, perfect apartment. But there was something... Now, she had been very much looked after by the others because she was one of the youngest ones. Yes. And um, she would say that she had been kept alive. The, the thing about the very young ones was that it struck me so much that the ones who came back and survived were the age between about 23 and 33 because those were the maximum years of psychological and physical strength. The same applied with the 45,000. Was it the same? Actually, yeah. 
Yeah, like most of the ones who survived, like if they were too young, actually it was a little harder for them to survive and too old as well uh, uh, for mostly like physical reasons. Yeah. But the youngest ones, are, are most of them actually didn't yeah. uh, survive. I think their spirits were crushed. Yeah, and, and they, I mean, the very young ones, the girls, um, you know, they missed their mothers and their parents and they, they'd never been away and, you know, so they were lonely and everything. And Pupet was one of the only young ones to survive. Yeah, that's very true, yeah. Um, um, Madeleine Yegozou, uh, who was Betty Longvoir, she was wonderful. Um, she really was terrific. She died only. She had pa pancreatic cancer, which normally kills you at once. And mm -hmm. She lived with it for seven years. Um, you know, and she lived in an apartment in Paris and she had been very brave because she'd done a lot in the resistance. Um, she'd sort of gone all over France, if I remember rightly, in a train, in trains, carrying messages. She'd even got German soldiers to carry her case for her, which would have been full of illicit material mm -hmm. and guns and things. She was very sparky. And you could see why she had survived. In a way, with all four of them, you could understand why they survived. And of course, Madeleine Audrou was, um, she was a communist. And she was very much kept going by her, by the sort of strength of her political feelings. And again, she was a school teacher. And she came back and she went on with her life. Um, she was the last one to die, I think. I think she was still alive even two years ago. Yes, uh, I think so. I think, I think she was the last one. Um, what was interesting to me, again, about the train, was that only a couple of them had any kind of religious faith. There was... Um, <clears throat> you, I, I believe you're, you're right. Uh, there is the, the uh, notable exception of uh, uh, Dr. Adelaide. Uh, Absolutely. She was a wonderful figure. And again, she was extremely brave. She was... Uh, I am doing a, a, a portrait of almost of the women you, you, you are mentioning. And okay. Adelaide Oval, to me, the, the Dr. Oval is, is one of the most... She was wonderful. Incredible. Uh, um, are there descendants? Does she have... Uh, no, she, she did have a. Um, she didn't have children of her own, yeah. uh, but she 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 are she is from a, a quite a, a big family. I, I recall. So she does have cousins and, and small cousins, and uh, okay. so um, so she she they, they are like descendants of yeah, the whole family. Yeah, yeah. No, she was a wonderful figure. It seems obvious that members of the resistance were men and women. Yet, not much is known about the role of women during the resistance, even though their role may be greater, actually. We discussed this matter with Caroline Moorhead, and it led to a discussion about another great book of hers, A House in the Mountains, as well as another book she had just finished writing. I certainly know more and more recently about Italy, because when, um, when I started my, doing my book about um, House in the Mountains, about resistance, um, I had initially thought about making it about men and women. Um, and then, as I said to you, you know, nobody knew anything about all these women. And then I started looking and I found these stories um, about these four women. Well, I could have found 
hundreds of stories, but I just chose these four women. Mm -hmm. And um, I think one of the reasons why they're less known is because at the end of the war, um, there was no will to make them known, whereas the men came back more assertive about what they'd done. And for the women who had been accustomed before the war in Italy to be kept out of everything, in a way that was expected of them after the war. Mm -hmm. So it was not until the 70s and the feminist movement that some of these women's stories began to be told. Um, not many women wrote about it in the early days, whereas quite a lot of men did. Um, one of the interesting things about the women in the resistance in Northern Italy was that for the first six months, that's to say October 43 till early spring of 44, the Germans didn't suspect the women of being in the resistance. So they were able to do a lot of things that the men couldn't do. Mm. And because it was dangerous for the men to be seen anywhere, the men who indeed were up in the mountains, and the girls and women acted as sort of messengers. Mm -hmm. um, they carried things up and down the mountains. And it was not until the spring of 44 that the Germans started thinking, Wait a minute. Wait a minute, I'm picking them up. Do you think you could let me know more about that book, House in the Mountains, please? Absolutely, and I'll give it to you. Thank you very much. What I wanted to do was I wanted to, I want to do what I always do, which is I take a small idea in order to paint a picture of the wider what's going on. What I'm interested really in is, is history, but in order to tell history, I like to have people's stories so I can explain what history was about. Um, so what was interesting about taking Turin on the mountains around Turin was the fact that it was very well documented. It's after the war, Italy has these wonderful resistance libraries and they've spent all their time bringing in material, um, collecting things, keeping things. Now, one of the problems about writing is, of course, at that time, nobody could write letters. So there was very, very little in the way of actual letters describing what they were doing. Mm -hmm. However, as with the train in winter, um, Ada Gobetti, who was my main, one of my main characters, um, kept a diary, which after the war was published. Which is a wonderful diary, and you know I was able to use that quite quite a lot. And the other three women I chose knew her, but were, were different. She was forty-one; they were twenty-five. One was a doctor, one was a lawyer, one was a Valdensian. Um, Ada had a son, so in a way, as you were saying. Um, being able to use these people, scattered people, to tell the story um, through these women and their friends, some, of course, of whom were men, I could tell the story of the 20 months of the Civil War, which is what I wanted to do. Because not only do people not know that there were only women in the Italian resistance, but they barely realised that there was a Civil War. I mean, the point about the Italian experience was that when Italy was liberated by the Allies, Rome was liberated by us in June 44. 
um, the sort of expectation was that the war would be very quickly would be over. But in fact, it's a combination of the fact that Mussolini fell and then was rescued by the Germans mm -hmm. and set up his um, Soviet Republic. But Italy was then occupied. It was occupied by everybody. It was occupied by the Germans. It was occupied by the Allies. It was occupied by um, Mussolini's fascists. Um, it was everything. It was Italians fighting Italians, Italians fighting Germans, um, Allies fighting Germans, Allies fighting fascists. I mean, it, that war was terrible. Those 20 months were just terrible. If I, uh, I am not wrong, uh, the, um, um, I'm going to say, I'm, I may say it wrong, but I think like uh, the king of Italy just quite quickly uh, uh, just uh, uh, not abdicated, but he just uh, was part of the uh, uh, lies uh, quite quickly as well. Which he fled to, to the south. He fled to the south, which led to a lot of people in Italy being ambivalent because some of them were for still uh, the Mussolini regime, but some others were quite close yeah. to uh, the royalty. Absolutely. So that, yeah. Absolutely. In a way, that's what I've just been writing about now because the book I've just done, I wanted to write about the 20 years of fascism, the Ventennio Fascista. Um, and to do that, I have taken the story of Mussolini's daughter. Mussolini's daughter, who was the sort of um, first lady of fascism, called Edda. And she was married to Ciano, who was the foreign minister. Okay. And she was, um, she, she was born in 1910. Mm -hmm. So her, and then terrible things happened to her. Um, so it's possible to write about Italy during those 20 years of fascism through her experience. That's fascinating. Oh, wow, that's, that's going to be a fascinating uh, uh, story to read. Wow. I hope, I hope. <laughs> Sounds um, work. <laughs> so that's the, the book you're writing now? I've just finished it. You just, oh, congratulations. It hasn't gone to the publisher yet, so okay. I'm always very nervous. Well, I'm going to be nervous for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I went the other night to do a talk at the British Italian Society, and... What was so interesting was that in the audience, about half half the audience had relations, grandparents, etc., who had been with the partisans, who'd been resistors. Wow. It was very interesting. So it, it, when the questions came, people put up their hands and said, can I just say something about my grandfather, my great-uncle, my... It was really interesting. That must interesting, yeah. Mm, it was. So this episode was about Louise Magadur and the first day of the 31,000 in the Birkenau camp, where the 45,000 entered Auschwitz on their first day, the 31,000 went directly to Birkenau. There was no selection to the gas chambers. The 31,000 are women between 16 and around 67, the oldest being Marie Mathilde Shaw. I will mention the youngest 31,000 in a later episode. The shaving process consisted of cutting the hair as short as possible, shaving the pubis, and then receiving some sort of petrol-based paste on both areas. After they were ordered to shower, yet there was no water to shower with on this team. All the women were shaved with the exception of Daniel Casanova, who was separated from the group minutes before. Still naked, the women were tattooed, numbers around 31 1,625 and 31,854. I say around as a few women's numbers were not found. So far, I haven't mentioned the tattooing process of the 45,000. I was planning on discussing it in a later episode.
but it is worth knowing that at this point of time, the 45,000 have also been tattooed, only they had not been tattooed on the day of their arrival, contrary to the 31,000. The women were given new clothes, which came right of the disinfection, therefore were wet, which was difficult for the 31,000 given the very cold temperatures in January 1943. The 31,000's reason for their deportation was anti-German activities, and they were, just like the 45,000 and many more, deported under the Nacht und Nebel label, so they were strict orders to tell absolutely nobody about their whereabouts. I assumed the younger 31,000 listened to Louise Magadur as she was slightly older, and as Daniel Casanova had just been taken by the SS. I don't have any ground to prove this. Louise Magadur survived. She is the oldest 31,000, as she was the only one born before 1900 to have survived. I have been trying to find Louise Magadur's relatives, unfortunately my research wasn't successful. If by any chance you know of someone related to her, please let me know, I would be very pleased to get in touch and make sure the text I wrote doesn't contain any errors. My sources for this story are the book Le Convoi du 24 Janvier by Charlotte Delbo, A Train in Winter by Caroline Mohet. My sources also are Red Triangles in Auschwitz by Claudine Cardon-Amet, the website Memoir Vive, the Foundation for the Memory of Deportation website, and the fantastic website Auschwitz.org. Thank you very much for listening. The next episode will be about Eugène Garnier and the resistance within Auschwitz-Birkenau. Thirty-one thousand, forty-five thousand. The story of two trains of French resistance. A podcast by Mathieu Landour Engel. <laughs>